Please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Psalm 73, 1 through 3, and then 12 through 28. This is a psalm of Asaph, King David's director of music. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far away from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is God's word. Now we have been praying regularly for those impacted by the loss and of life and the devastation that has been caused by the fires in Maui. We're especially praying for Danny and Jamie and their families and what they've lost. And there's many stories that are coming out of Maui. One of the stories captures the feelings of many, and I read it. For three days since the hurricane-fueled wildfire tore through the, his town, Anthony Garcia has swept a square normally packed with tourists, but now filled with charred debris and the scorched remains of animals, trying to make sense of a catastrophe that came from nowhere. When asked why he was cleaning up, he said, I have to do something. As the conversation deepened, he added, I can't believe God allowed this to happen. I'm losing my faith in God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, many of us and many of those we know have some of these same feelings because of what's happened in Maui, the tragedies around them, or their own personal struggles. Bring us into your sanctuary today. 
through our song. May the Holy Spirit show us your glory, your love, and your goodness. Amen. Psalm 73 raises the question, is God good? It's one of 12 psalms attributed to Asaph. Asaph was among the most prominent spiritual leaders of his day. King David appointed him as one of three chief Levitical worship leaders to oversee the vocal and instrumental aspects of the tabernacle ministry. In other words, he was the Drew Halberstadt of Israel's worship. (laughs) Some scholars have a different view. They believe that Psalm 73 was written after the destruction of Jerusalem, over 400 years after Asaph lived. So they believe Asaph is probably shorthand for a songwriting society, taking their name from David's right-hand worship leader. But in either case, the author of Psalm 73 was a highly esteemed worship spiritual leader. And yet, he had his doubts about God. And he was close to losing his faith. This morning, we're going to make six applications from Asaph's journey, which began with questioning God's goodness and arrived with him redefining God's goodness as the nearness of God. So, first application. No. Satan wants us to question God's goodness. The psalm opens, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. See, Asaph intellectually accepted the theology of God's goodness. If he had written an essay, On God's goodness, he would have gotten an A. He would have said, God is good. God is good to Israel. God is good to those who are pure in heart. Yes, indeed, God is good. But a different dynamic was working inside his mind and his heart. He wrote, my feet came close to stumbling, stumbling over the goodness of God. My steps had nearly slipped, sliding me further and further away from God. Satan had Asaph right where he wanted him. Just needed to tip him a little more. See, Satan is always trying to undermine people's faith by getting them to doubt the goodness of God because the goodness of God is the first domino. And if it falls... It begins a domino effect knocking over our faith in God. When it falls, the rest of our walk with God will suffer. When we stop believing in God's goodness, we will stop from turning to God to turning to other philosophies or other ways of living to find fulfillment. And we see this foremost in the first sin of humanity in the garden. See, God created the world and it was good. And then he created man and woman and it was very good. 
and he placed them in a literal paradise where they could have anything they wanted except one tree that God put there to provide for them and to protect them. But Satan took advantage of our weakness. He appeared in the guise of a serpent, and he got Eve to question God's goodness by getting her to stop focusing on all that God had provided and to zero on the one thing God was disallowing. And his message was, Eve, don't you realize God is keeping you from the one thing that will bring you ultimate fulfillment, the one thing that will allow you to become all that you could become because you can be like God. And if God is keeping that tree from you, it means he is selfish, self-centered, not caring about you, but only about himself. God is not good. Eve fell for it. And what's the result? She gave to Adam. He fell. And when they bought into that lie, brokenness entered into their life. Brokenness went, entered into humanity. And we suffer the same brokenness when we turn from God's goodness and fulfillment in him to all the wrong ways. That's what Satan wants. Second application, don't hide your doubts from God. See, Asaph was faking it. In his head, God is good. In his heart, I really am wondering about that. He wasn't feeling it. His feet almost slipped down that slippery slope away from God. If he had not been honest with God, he would have slipped all the way. But instead, we read, he was honest enough to admit his doubts and get in touch with the source of those doubts. It began by looking inside, seeing that he was envious and why he was envious. Verses 3 through 7. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride as their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. See, the key phrase here is, I was envious of the wicked when I saw, the envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, they were living a trouble-free life, a life of leisure. They were wealthy, they were admired by others, and they were arrogant, violent, and foolish. See, Asaph despised their character, but he wanted their life. He was bewildered by how a good God would allow them to flourish. Especially as we read in the next verses that they despised others and oppressed them and mocked God. Verses 8 through 12. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. 
They set their mouths against the heavens and their, their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them. and They find no fault in them. And then they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. If you were a good and just God, how would you treat someone who was oppressing others, stepping all over them, mocking God and making fun of him? But look at what they get. It seems like they're getting rewards. They're always at ease and increasing in riches. That doesn't make sense if God is good. Now, the prosperity of the wicked was one side of the coin of Asaph's doubts. The other side was the impoverishment of the righteous, as we see in verses 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean, washed my hands in innocence, for, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. All in vain. He felt that everything he had done for God, everything about his relationship with God was worthless. It was meaningless to God because God not only failed to reward him like he seemed to reward the righteous, but God allowed him to be stricken and rebuked all day long. You know, we can join Asaph in asking the question, why God? You say, Lord, that you're going to bless the righteous and punish the wicked, but that's not what we see in life. Drug lords and human traffickers live on palatial estates as they ruin the lives of others. Faithful Christians are martyred as they pour out their lives for others. We try to walk with you, Lord, and yet we struggle with pain, disease, and loss. Even as we draw ever closer to you, it, it doesn't make sense. Where is your goodness? What do you do with those doubts? Share them with God. He's not intimidated by them, and he knows them, whether you know them or not. Psalm 73 shows us that we need to understand and share our doubts with God because it shows us how to deal with them. When in doubt, go to God. Verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discern their end. Where do we go with our doubts? Do we go inward and feel sorry for ourselves? 
Do we turn outward to our world and to find other examples that show us God isn't good? And so that we slide further and further away from God. Or do we turn to other philosophies, other ways of finding fulfillment apart from God himself? Asaph went to the right place to resolve his conflict with God. He went to God. Now, he may have actually gone into the sanctuary of God. He was, he was a worship leader. Or he may have been like David in Psalm 63, that he may have been speaking figuratively, meaning that the presence of God was just as real to him as if he was in the sanctuary. He met God. He listened to God. And his entire outlook on life changed. He gained an eternal perspective. And that leads us to our next application. Look at the temporal in light of the eternal. See, once he was in God's presence, the, the psalmist's view changed. His view about the wicked, his view about himself, and his view about God were radically transformed. His view of the wicked changed, verses 18 through 20. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them. Now he was seeing the wicked in the right way, seeing their eternal destiny. See, we're deluded to think that this life is all we have. It's foolish to live as though the here and now matters more than eternity itself. See, our lives are only a shadow compared to eternity. I remember preaching at a nursing home, and all of the residents think they're old. And so I asked, is anyone here uh, 10,000 years old? Nobody raised their hand. So that I got it to 5,000. Any, anybody 5,000 years old? Still no one. 1,000? 500? Nobody very old here because as I read Amazing Grace, it says when we've been there 10,000 years, Bright shining as the sun, there's no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Our lives are less than one grain of sand in all of the seas of the ocean. And we invest so much here and not as much there. When Asaph went into God's presence, that changed for him. He woke up to reality, and he knows one day the wicked are going to wake up from their dream and face reality. They would be destroyed in a moment. God's eternal judgment would crush them. And Asaph stopped envying them. So his view of himself changed, verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, 
I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Asaph had been judging God according to the temporal, materialistic values of his culture. After he met with God, he realized his foolishness in judging God and the folly of valuing the here and now more than what awaits us in eternity. Asaph saw that he was just like the beasts who are only concerned with the moment, but not with anything beyond. His view of God changed, and that changed his relationship with God. Verses 23 through 26. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What a dramatic turnaround when he began to look beyond what he could see and look at what he couldn't see that God saw. The Apostle Paul wrote, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of earth. And that sums up the transformation of the psalmist. He could trust God because he was looking to God's eternal treasures. Once he had his eyes fixed on what it would be like when God received him in glory and he looked at earth, there was no comparison. All he desired now was God. Our next application, redefine your definition of good. See, Asaph struggled with God's goodness at the beginning of the psalm because he had a wrong definition of good. His definition of good was based on what he saw the arrogant receiving. He defined it as materialistic prosperity, ease of life, power and prestige. They had it all. God was giving them good, nothing to him. God was not good. But once he went into the sanctuary of God, his entire definition of good was flipped on its head. Notice it in verse 28. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge and I may, that I may tell of all your works. But as for me, it's good to be near God. He redefined God as nearness to God. Excuse me, he redefined good as nearness to God. He treasured closeness with God above all else. Once he had the right definition of good, he could see God was good no matter what was happening here on earth. We have an even better vantage point than Asaph because we know the nearness of God is good and we know why we can be near God. 
because God sacrificed his son for us. That's why we can be near God. What a gift of goodness. Lastly, counsel others with the way Asaph counsels us. The Christian counselor Timothy Lane said that when he begins counseling, he has to undo the counseling that Christians had given his clients. Why? Because when we counsel others, we often counsel with the wrong definition of what is good. Our focus is temporal, not eternal. Look at the journey of Asaph. First, he surfaced his doubts, he surfaced his issues, he surfaced his questions. If we're going to come alongside someone else, listen, listen, listen. Do not be quick to speak because we don't really know what the, what's going on under the surface until we hear what's really they are saying is going on under the surface. Then, look especially for how the goodness of God might be a question in their lives. They, they won't say it, it's the goodness of God, but you might see it that it's underneath everything else because that's where Satan wants to go in each of our lives. Remember, it's the first domino to fall. Then, bring them into the sanctuary of God. It's not about all the good things we could say. It's about getting them with God. And there, when they're with God, getting them to see God for who he is and all his glory, to see God for who he is and all of his love, all of his mercy, all of his justice, all of his care for them, help them to see God and connect to God. And out of that, to gain an eternal perspective, to have a focus and a realization of no matter what happens here on earth, there is glory that awaits those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And then help them redefine what is good. Redefine it as their relationship with God and the depths of their relationship with God. That's the pattern of counsel. You know, we've just skimmed this psalm. Dig deeply into it. Enter into God's sanctuary. The presence of God was transformative for Asaph. Let it be for us. Now, we, we don't know what he saw there exactly. Maybe he did behold his glory. That changed his transformation. But there must have been more because his whole definition of goodness got flipped on its head. He must have gotten in touch with the love of God. Perhaps like David, he looked back in the past of Israel and saw how God delivered Israel from Egypt and so many other ways. He might have looked at instances in his own life when he had thought God wasn't good and then realized it all panned out and God was good. There's one place we can go where we cannot deny the goodness of God and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. 
I don't know how many of you read the prayer letter that Kay sent out from Sierra Leone this week. But she modeled what I'm talking about. She shared stories of tremendous pain, suffering, injustice. Stories that would make just about any of us question God's goodness. But she didn't because she went to the cross. She wrote, light of all that she saw. I've been reminded that I follow the one who knows the unfairness of life. He chose it, actually. Chose it to step into the injustices of this world rather than its privileges. Born to scandal, poverty, oppression. Later abused, mocked, unfairly murdered for our guilt. It matters that he knows the unfair underbelly of this life. And it matters, too, that on the cross and in his incarnation, he did something decisive about life's injustices and sorrows. He has already acted. If you question the goodness of God because of the suffering and evil in the world, look to the cross. There you'll see that Jesus is more heartbroken over the brokenness of our world than even we are because he paid the ultimate price to turn things around. He left the comfort and glory of heaven to sacrifice him for our, to sacrifice himself for our sins so that he might receive us into glory, might make right everything that is wrong and be our good. The cross of Christ is the answer to the question, is God good? Let's pray. Father, meet each of us this morning where we are in our journey with this question and then bring us into your sanctuary. Keep us there. Bring us to the foot of the cross. Keep us there. Bring us to the goodness of God shown in Jesus Christ and keep us there. Bring us into the heavens. Show us not only your glory, but the glory that awaits us. Amen.